This podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. It is not intended to cause or induce breach of an existing agency agreement. The goal of this podcast since day one is to provide the best information on the Vancouver real estate market at no cost to you, the listeners. To that end, we'd like to thank the following sponsors. This podcast is sponsored by Marcon, a local family-owned and managed real estate development and construction company that's been around for nearly four decades. Marcon is not only committed to high-quality construction, but it also is making a positive impact in the communities in which it builds all across the Lower Mainland. We want to highlight two incredible Marcon projects. Elmwood, a 38-story tower located at Burquitlam's most important intersection, Como Lake Avenue and Clark Road. This landmark tower will feature 335 condominiums, over 37,000 square feet of office and retail space, and almost 20,000 square feet of amenity space. Elmwood has been incredibly popular with 80% sold currently, but they still have a great selection of junior one-bedroom all the way to three-bedroom homes remaining. Check out markon.ca slash Elmwood for more. And Matt, we are also excited about Sone House, Markon's newest community in West Coquitlam. With 165 homes ranging from junior one beds to three beds, Sone House offers the perfect West Coast aesthetic with a more nuanced Nordic-inspired design. Register today at markon.ca slash Sonehouse. That's S-O-E-N-H-A-U-S. Or you can learn more at markon.ca or follow them at Instagram at markonhomes. Markon, building for life. Hello? 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 This is the Vancouver Weather State Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today we've got a phenomenal episode. I'm really excited about this one. We've got Gil Kelly, Chief Planner at the City of Vancouver. This has been a long time coming and uh, man, I didn't know what to expect, but Gil Kelly does not disappoint. No, This guy absolutely. is uh, an impressive, impressive guy. I left thinking, one, uh, I'm super excited about the future of the city and two, I'm super uh, happy with who we have at the head of uh, planning. Well, and you know what? He makes a case. I mean, this whole idea that we're at a crossroads here and we have to make some bold choices. And man, the weight of the world's on his shoulders. But one thing that struck me about Gil Kelly was, man, very cerebral, very intellectual. um, And kind of has a kind of, you'd imagine he's, uh, he could easily be a planning professor, but he's actually putting stuff into practice every day, like really on the ground, making moves. And, uh, and it's that combination that you don't find very often, at least with the people we talk to. No. And he, and he's got that way about him. He's also a visionary. He, we talk, we talk at a lot of different levels, uh, in the interview, um, like down to kind of brass tacks and then also kind of maybe Pretty Some, pretty high up, level, up high level, and and sometimes even in the clouds, kind of theoretical. Well, he does he does teach a master class in Amsterdam once a year, right? I mean, and he's also worked. We should say like Seattle, Portland, San Francisco. Uh, so he's got that international kind of uh, he's experience. Worldly. He's worldly, but um, but you know he's he's got it down to at the street level as well. 
All right. Well, enough enough geeking out about how uh, how awesome it was to hang out with Gil Kelly. Uh, let's uh, let's let's move on. We got the Oakland tip before we get to our interview. We do. We have the Oakland tip this week. This is our real estate brokerage, Oakland Realty. Fantastic place to be. The tip this week: always interview. Be in control of who you hire and interview at least three agents brokerages to see who is the best. Yes. So if you're if you're interviewing us, uh, make sure you get uh, interview Talk. Adam, Matt, and Secret. And we got news for you: Secret's not licensed. <laughs> so you got to we'll whittle it down. Here. We'll whittle yeah. it down. But you a- ask yourself at the end of the day: Who are you comfortable with, and who can you trust? And this seems right. like this is simple advice, but uh, it's actually very important, right? Because we talk to people all the time who have had experiences where they feel pressured to make decisions they're not super comfortable with. And this is, you know, it's just a fact of our business that that not all agents operate the same way. Right. And this is a very important decision. These are huge assets. Sometimes this is the largest asset most people own. Right. So you want to be comfortable during the process. And we always highlight, Matt, like there's, there's 14,000 agents in Vancouver. So chances are, somebody in your family or somebody that you know is an agent. One thing to make sure, it doesn't mean you don't include them in, in your interviewing process. And it doesn't mean that you don't necessarily work with that that individual, but just make sure that they are actually an expert in the sub market that you're working in. Do they sell condos? Do they, do they work in that specific sub neighborhood that you're selling in? Because the, there are subtleties in markets that agents have to be aware of when they're working. And, and for sure, make sure that you're getting someone who's actually an expert in your area. Absolutely. Do not feel obligated. So there's Oakland's tip, but we always have a tip. We do. Yes. And this week, my tip, Matt, would be don't discount the effectiveness of getting a mentor or a coach in any area of your life. And and the reason I'm going to say that is because I was actually, I was just reading a book uh, the other day that kind of highlighted, could you imagine how crazy it would be if you were an Olympic athlete without a coach? And I got thinking about that. And, uh, you know, every sport we played growing up, coaches. Yeah. Right. Everything, uh, you know, you, it's going through school, you have teachers, you have somebody correcting your way, your handwriting, your, the way you do math, everything. Right. And then you get to be an adult and you just decide you're going to wing it. <laughs> like you specifically. Yeah. No. <laughs> so this is an interesting, you mentioned this to me cause it's an interesting idea, right? right. Like everyone has blind spots. Yeah, everybody. You're, yeah. You're, you're, you're muddling your way through everything. Nobody's watching and saying, hey, you might want to, you know, extend your arm on that serve a little bit metaphorically thinking about your marriage. Mine, not mine, <laughs> not mine specifically. But I mean, but, we're doing yeah. this on the fly, right? We're no, doing business, totally. marriage. Adjust your golf kids. swing, but like yeah. in your case, like <laughs> limit your calorie intake. Like, so there's a bunch <laughs> of different ways you can you can think about the the metaphoric coaching. But the reality is get a great mentor or get a great coach in all areas of your life. And the most successful people that we've had on the program, always, that is always, true. that's like, they're just constantly working with someone to, and I think you nailed it. Pick out the blind spot. That's right. No, that's a, that's a good tip. Uh, almost gets uh, to the level of The Economist magazine that I pulled <laughs> last week. Excellent. Good one. Uh, last, before we get to the uh, talk with Gil Kelly, the stats just came out. We sent them out. We sent out the stats on the sub areas for January. Right. January, bit of a mixed bag. Yes. Steady. Uh, I think the big news is inventory was still almost 20% below. It was like 17.9% or something. 17.4. 17.4% below the 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 10-year January average. Sales were also down. But man, at least in the city of Vancouver, it 
didn't feel it felt kind of like December carried on through to January. Well, yeah. we're we're very busy. Everyone we're talking to is very busy. Lots of multiple offers out there in a lot of submarkets, and we're seeing prices go up now in some submarkets. West as well. Side condos were up two percent. I know that uh, last month. East Van homes were up as well. Yep. Uh, there's yeah. It, it. I think it's an inventory thing still. I think that's kind of the the main takeaway of these stats. Yeah. It's it's kind of the verdict is still out, but it it feels like it's getting busy again in a lot of markets, and uh, it's going to be an interesting spring. It already feels like we're getting there. That's right. But maybe we should cut to our talk with Chief planner from the city of Vancouver, Gil Kelly, strap in. This one covers a lot of ground, but uh, if you're not thinking deeply about a few things about Vancouver after this, I don't know. Yes, get ready to be inspired, Vancouver. Okay, so we're here with Gil Kelly, chief planner at the city of Vancouver. How you doing, Gil? I'm doing just great this afternoon. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Gil, for for coming down to the studio and taking the time today. My pleasure. Can can you maybe start, a lot of our listeners, actually, we were talking off air, like, you've been the most recommended guest for us to to try and have on the program by our guests, people in the development community, um, other planning community, other planning community, other planners, um, everyone. Every, really? Everyone yeah. wants us to talk to you. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so it's great to, it's great to have, finally have you on. Um, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, I'm happy to. Uh, that's not an intimidating introduction, by the way. Everybody <laughs> wants to hear from me. Uh, um, I can be skewered afterwards by your by your <laughs> listeners, but uh, yeah, I uh, well, I'm a now a three and closer to three and a half year resident of Vancouver, having come here to take this job. Um, but I'm a West Coaster, so I live most of my life in the States, uh, in California and Oregon, and done some work in Washington State as well. So right. really kind of a West Coast guy. And I find that um, in many ways, um, the West Coast cities, whether they're here or in the U.S., have a lot more in common with each other than they do with their Midwestern or East Coast counterparts. Um, there's a certain, there's a certain kind of, um, I don't know, uh, an ethos and a kind of cultural, um, vibe that's, uh, really pretty similar up and down the West Coast. Um, right. and more so than it is from here to the East Coast, whether you're Canadian or, or U.S. A lot of that has to do with, um, you know, somewhat enlightened views around the environment, around social inclusion and equity, around kind of high livability. Um, we're really blessed on the West Coast in right. general by the natural settings we have and by the sort of combination of the various streams of heritage that have come into our communities and are at play, but also by kind of a pioneering spirit, if you will, which translate in modern times, I think, to uh, ability to be open at least to innovation, um, including how we build our cities and right. how we form community and much... Um, much less sort of a class structure than you find in on the eastern shores of, of the continent or, sure. or or even elsewhere in the world, I think. So to me, that just provides an exciting um, canvas, if you will, to do the work that I do on and many, many, many others do um, up and down the coast. And I've found really compelling cities to work in who wanted to be on the vanguard of that sort of combination of high livability of social inclusion and of um, uh, environmental and uh, climate change awareness and action. Right. And so I, I 
served this this role or a similar role in cities of Berkeley, California, Portland, Oregon, um, San Francisco, California, and uh, and now here. And those are all great places that had a sort of um, willingness to take a risk and make some chance, you know, take some chances on their future and kind of garner um, community and political support to make some bold moves. So, right. and that's what honestly really attracted me about coming to Vancouver is I think it's just, it's a, it's a young city, but one that just has a, a huge bright future ahead of it and the ability right now to seize the moment to make some pretty fundamental moves that I think will be, We'll serve it well if we can uh, muscle up to those and articulate those choices and then and then make them, and that's what excites me. Um, and that crosses over between boundaries of physical planning and social planning and environmental work and kind of a long-term and strategic lens to what does the city want to be when it grows up. And that's what excited me about the ten years, nearly ten years work I did in Portland and in Berkeley and several years in San Francisco. Um, just catching that moment of kind of inflection in the city's right. history uh, to, to jump right in and work on that. So. And, and so that's interesting because I feel like with a lot of our guests lately, we're talking about kind of uh, growing pains in Vancouver or yes. a transitional moment. In in your experience, is that kind of a sp- specific to Vancouver right now in kind of this city's history or is that part of a larger kind of transition that's going on, I guess, across down the West Coast, but yeah, but in North America, there are a lot of similarities up and down the West Coast of the transition we're going through. I think the West Coast is emerging, uh, in some ways, California already has as a uh, a node on the, the global constellation of, of cities and of economy, global economy that's forward looking and really generating the next wave of of innovation and and uh, economic heft but also in social policy as well and so i think vancouver in particular right now is um at a moment where we should pr- think about how we turn crisis into opportunity um mm-hmm. so it's not um surprise to anyone that we have a housing affordability crisis in Vancouver. That certainly was the case in San Francisco, where I came from, and is increasingly so in Seattle and Portland and uh, even in L.A. Um, it, but it's particularly acute here. And in some ways, although housing prices are um, uh, higher in absolute terms in San Francisco overall than they are here, the affordability gap between people, what they earn and what they can afford for housing is actually more acute in Vancouver than it is in San Francisco and even more acute than it is in, in New York. So uh, Vancouver is one of the least affordable markets in the on the globe. Now it's not, we're not quite at the London or Shanghai level, but we're, we're really, really, in terms of North America, I think we're the most stressed uh, market right now in terms of uh, ability to pay versus the cost of housing. Mm-hmm. And we want to, I want to go back to some of these questions, okay. but just but just based on just what you're saying there, how much of that has to do with planning? Well, um, of course, planning cures everything. <laughs> um, well, a lot of it has to do with planning, and that's probably a good point to raise early in this discussion, which is my conception of planning is um, perhaps not unorthodox, but it's very um, uh, expansive or, or, or comprehensive. I think planning is a discipline about looking forward, taking stock of what is, and embracing all the drivers of change, and really very deliberately or intentionally, as I like to say, 
um, stirring that mix into something that we all can support in terms of declaring what our future as a city should be. And so what I, what I mean there is that planning, in my view, is not simply a matter of uh, land use um, policy and the sort of precursor to the zoning and development bylaw. That's a big tool in the toolkit. Um, but it has to really involve uh, who are we as a community in terms of who do we want to be? How inclusive are we? Are we multi-generational? Are we, do we want to become just the boutique city in the center of a growing region? Do we want to be a, a more diverse and inclusive community? Um, do we want to really ta- tackle the climate emergency and, and be leaders in that regard. So my view of planning is quite comprehensive um, and because I think the the discipline of, of, of looking forward, of taking stock of, of science and facts and then engaging people largely in a prospective, aspirational look at the future, the desired future, cuts across all those subject areas. And so um, I'm one of those who, throughout my career, regardless of which city I've been, or even in my consulting role, have tried to bring together the the factions within City Hall that are often, you know, very siloed. We've got a transportation function here. We've got a land use planning function there. We've got a community um, uh, well-being function somewhere else. And actually, it's bringing all those folks together to create a cohesive a vision and a set of uh, of policies that um, I find most exciting. And that's a lot of the work that I'm trying to do here. And that I think um, taking that out of City Hall into the community um, is the big opportunity in the what we're calling now the Vancouver Plan, which is the citywide future look uh, here. The really, what I would call is the city strategy as opposed to simply a land use plan, which will be a component of it. Just, and this is not to, I know... Um you know, we've had uh, other uh, folks on the on the show before that have been in the planning, uh, worked for the city and in the planning community. And this isn't meant to be, you know, uh, pointing out any anybody in particular. But like Larry Beasley was on the show, and he said, you know, Vic, we're almost a victim of our success, like yes. in terms of because you know, I was struck there by the fact that you know we're more expensive than. San Francisco, New York, we're a victim of our own success. Do you think, did planners at any point, I guess, like, and we could go back 100 years, but was, is the crisis in affordability, can you rest some of the blame on the planning community or how much of it? Some of it. And I think um, Larry stole that line from me, by the way. I think we are. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, I'm tracking you, man. Uh, no, I've used that quite a bit in, in talking up and down the West Coast over the last few years, is that in many ways the West Coast cities are, we are victims of our own success. And what I mean by that is we have um, done a very good job, Larry, uh, amongst the best, in in really um, defining the new urbanism uh, that is so attractive. Um but part of it is um, the intentional planning we work to make great places and great communities have now become um, very compelling and attractive places to be, and um, the prices have escalated accordingly. Part of it, though, is you have to step back and think, well, it also happens to be the places where economic innovation has occurred to a great degree uh, in North America and even in the globe. Um, that's certainly the case with San Francisco with the, with the explosion in Silicon Valley around the technology industries there, which have now taken root in Seattle as well, and we're beginning to see that here. 
So the the growth in the economy and particularly in well-paying jobs um, has been part of that crisis. Um, so we're victims of our success not only in terms of traditional planning work in that we've created very livable, attractive places which are bringing people in, but I think that we um, are the victims of that uh, larger um, 21st century economic paradigm that many of our cities have been at the forefront, the vanguard of, and the fact that globally people are flooding to cities. Uh, mm -hmm. We now, for the first time in history, right. are a more urban population than a rural population, and that's not slowing down. And as you all know, um, early in my planning career, the whole idea was to stem the tide of, of all the energy going to the suburbs and to recapture right. the center <laughs> cities. Now it's like, whoa, what were we thinking? <laughs> and maybe the next generation will be, yes, of course, we're going to have a vital city center, but we also have to have a, a kind of constellation of centers within any metro region so that we spread the wealth a little bit and, and, right. and all that kind of thing, interconnected by better transit than any of our cities have right now. But So it'll be interesting to watch that evolution um, and to be part of that. Um, but I do think there is something to the line that we are, in a sense, victims of our own success. We're, there are cities on, in North America that are still emptying out, still losing population, and, right. and their economies are really flat, really in tough shape. Um, Would you say, in thinking about the West Coast, are these the cities that we kind of draw inspiration from, Vancouver? Or where, where is the city kind of like? Where do you look in global cities? Well, I, I'm fortunate to have have pretty intimate knowledge of the West, the major West Coast cities. Uh, maybe L.A. the least of those, although it's a fascinating place and want to learn more from it. Um, so I think we draw inspiration from one another, and we've started over the last uh, two or three years a kind of uh, West Coast cities learning exchange. Um, kind of beginning with the Cascadia notion of the three major cities here, Portland, Seattle, and Vancouver, but spreading it to San Francisco. Uh, and now we're talking with L.A. about kind of joining in that. We did a, a presentation here uh, last year um, uh, at the um, – at the QE Theater with the directors of planning from four of the cities. And uh, that was an interesting piece to do. So we do draw inspiration from one another, and we've continued that work with City to City Exchange. But I also draw inspiration from other cities globally. Uh, there's a lot going on, and it's, you know, it's hard to pick out any one particular one. Uh, I've certainly spent a lot of time in Amsterdam and Copenhagen in particular in Europe learning from their experiences. But Barcelona, um, Milan, uh, even uh, Bologna, because of its regional cluster of, uh, of industries and cooperation is a very interesting one. Uh, there are cities that have just gone through this sort of miraculous transformation like Bilbao in Spain and uh, Curitiba in Brazil. Um, all of these places I think we can draw inspiration from. Um, those mostly that I'm speaking of are... A cluster, including Portland, that I would include in the category of what I call intentional cities, which is a, a book I'm working on. It's been working on it for a decade, and will probably take right. another decade to get it published. But uh, <laughs> but there's a notion there that they have somehow um, looked into their souls and decided who they want to be, and then aligned the forces to make that happen. And uh, in a couple of cases, have been able to sustain that through political generations in, in office, which I find fascinating. 
there all happen to be Western democracies that I've talked about within that tradition. So there are uh, cities in in Asia, China, and in Singapore. For Singapore, Singapore may be the star amongst those, which have a more command and control structure and can just make things happen uh, mm-hmm. quickly. Uh, and they've made enormous advances, um, also enormous um uh, mistakes and uh, their downsides there. But I'm sp- speaking now mostly in the Western democratic tradition of what it means. And in my view, um, and stop me if I'm rambling off too far oh. here, but I do think cities are, and by extension perhaps increasingly metropolitan areas as they begin to form more um, formally in governance structures, really are the primary unit of change around the globe. It's no longer nations provinces, mm-hmm. states, the real power to innovate and where most wealth uh, is generated, where, where most innovation occurs is at the city uh, or metropolitan level. And that's, to me, the focus for the future. And so the city to city learning exchange is one little tiny tip of that iceberg. But really, the notion of the Cascadia Rail, for example, connecting three powerful metropolitan areas and becoming a recognizable unit in some way globally uh, is an interesting mm. piece because to me, the national boundaries, of course, they're different legal and tax structures, and that's even true from province to province. And there's some cultural traditions that are, that are clearly bounded by national boundaries, but increasingly we're a global structure made up of cities. Um, and right. so to me, that's part of why I just love the work that I do and, and why I have an expansive view of, of planning and city building. Um, it's for that reason. That's uh that's definitely uh, that's the first time we've heard that's we've, the first time we've yeah. heard that yeah I was gonna say the but it makes sense to think of kind of cosmopolitan centers and even some of the people you see in Vancouver where you know, they're operating uh, across time zones in multiple cities right <laughs> yeah. absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah and we're gonna see that we're already seeing that in a in a corporate sense in terms of the economy being organized across markets but uh, think about climate change and the potential for Massive climate refugees. Right. Uh, they're going to know no boundaries. <laughs> yeah. They're going to go wherever it's safe and whether they might have a future. So that level of, of immigration, which is a product of climate change, will be another one of those boundary busters, I think. So, um, right. I, I kind of, I'm, I'm kind of curious because I mean, we were, we have a question here about kind of a lot of people, they think of community plans. And then when we have this city wide plan. Yeah trying to understand like the how how different they are and is is this a process of soul searching for vancouver or is is w- that kind of like an overarching idea for I, I would like it to be let me give you one a little example about that um and that's i mentioned amsterdam before and i come back to amsterdam and become good colleagues with the consul general here from from holland from uh, the netherlands um, but I've spent some time there over the years. I was teaching a master class every year in, at the University of Amsterdam. I got to know the culture there and, and understood the planning ethos there, but also the, the underpinnings of much of the work that goes on there. And it's a smaller country, and so the connection between the city and the national government was much tighter than it is here in North America. But, um, you know, in the 70s and early 80s, Amsterdam was really a fading European capital. It, clear, clearly, its glory days were in the 1600s, right? It was the trading capital of <laughs> yeah. the world. Uh, and it had done okay with its standard of living ever since and brought along. But it really was fading in importance and becoming increasingly 
irrelevant in terms of uh, its particular niche uh, or identity in in the larger European sphere. And um, uh, so the economy began to decline there a bit. Um, um, People are Dutch and they're happy making their own lives and all that. But there was this kind of, who are we and where are we going here? The, the whole global economic structure is changing and how are we part of that or not part of that? When we used to be leading it, if you look back a few centuries. And uh, what was very interesting was that a combination of um, enlightened folks at the city, at the university, in the political structure and in the national structure said, look... Um, you know, just like in Denmark, the energy costs are going up. They're, they're swamping us. We're, we're way too dependent on traditional sources of energy. Our universities are good, but they're not leading the world in anything in particular. Uh, our public is comfortable, but we don't, we haven't articulated our economic future. So what do we want to be? And in many ways, this soul searching question you asked about meant they had to really look into their souls and say, who do we want to be? And they said, after a, a lot of uh, informal conversation and some formal, we're Dutch and we're traders. That's what we do. And rather than thinking we're going to be the the New York or Shanghai of the future, what if we inverted the equation and brought people to us rather than us go to all of them? And they sort of settled on this notion that maybe they were the the conference headquarters of, of Northeastern Europe. So... Um, bring people, bring the world to us. And what they did then intentionally was overbuild the Schiphol airport many times over what any rational uh, 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 travel <laughs> uh, projection would have been, ridership like projection, yeah, <laughs> uh, was to combine that with um, doubling down on the preservation of the historic city center, which is a huge attraction for visitors. Um, so people who might be in a conference uh, and their spouse was traveling into the core to see, you know, the largest, the world's largest intact uh, UNESCO-designated World Heritage Site. And then uh, built sort of a new city within the city, halfway between the airport and that old quarter in what was called the Zaudas or South Access, which basically uh, built hotel, conference, and space for uh, corporations. And suddenly you had uh, companies like Philips, which is a German electronics company, saying, right. We're going to put our uh, headquarters there, uh, and oh, and Nike decided we're we're down in Bologna, but actually maybe our European headquarters belongs in Amsterdam. And he started to have a flood of this energy. That's a very intentional city building idea. Now that's all around kind of the the economy piece, but it's it's a it's a signal to what kind of conversation we could have here in Vancouver. What kind of place uh, do we want to be? Um, because I think if we're only consumed by questions about how do we make housing just a bit more affordable or how do we do this or that? Um, we're going to be um, victims of incremental thinking rather than transformative thinking, which is what I think the big opportunity here is. So hmm. so many people will define in their minds the, the Vancouver plan, the citywide plan in traditional terms like, What's the new density for my neighborhood? And right. What was yeah. the, what's the precursor to the zoning bylaw language? That's an important piece to get to. But the first question is really, what kind of city do we want to be and for whom? And um, so we're going to be involving um, some fairly rigorous scenario planning, which looks at plausible futures. Like if if we just continue on the way we're doing, what are the like results in 30 years or, or 50 mm -hmm. years if we 
push a few levers this way and decide we want to be a city for everyone for all incomes what choices does that involve if we if we want to handle sea level rise and uh, climate challenges in a very aggressive way what does that uh, imply for the kind of city we are and the kind of investments we need to make so i want to start the planning at that scale uh, and i think that in many ways that will be quite engaging for a lot of people who sometimes sit on the planning sideline because they kind of see it as well it's going to be a bunch of people bickering about is it you know 35 feet or 45 feet height in my district is it this or that or you know yeah Mm-hmm. And um, that's very interesting for many people and not so much so interesting for others. And so I think this notion about what kind of city we want to be overall is a more engaging question, potentially. Yeah. So, so I think we've all, well, I think at least probably I'm assuming all three of us, at least, I, I don't go to a lot of the, the uh, you know, when a building's being proposed uh, in that stage and you hear about all the the different viewpoints. But this citywide plan um, I know it, there's a the consultation phase, right? The first phase. And, and a lot of what you're saying here is, um, and I feel like we talk a lot about cities and planning, is like really high level, yeah. really interesting. Uh, you know, my inclination is to say like, sit back and go like, you'll do your thing. Yeah. <laughs> this sounds yeah, good, yeah, this yeah, sounds yeah. good right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but there's a lot of different voices and a lot of different viewpoints and a lot of different yeah. stakeholders. Like, how do you... Does that, does that, are you an optimist that there can be kind of what you're describing in Amsterdam, some sort of coherent, uh, well, I'm, plan? I'm, I'm certainly hopeful about that. It's not going to be an easy road to get there, but, but, um, while we need to get to that high level and stay there, actually, we were starting at a very low level, even below the sort of usual planning questions, which is right now we're out in the community in many different communities through a whole bunch of different techniques of surveying and engagement just to get a real read on what are, what is people's lived experience in Vancouver right now? Where are people right now? What, what, what makes them happy? What makes them really frustrated? Uh, what are they worried about? What are the challenges in their daily life? So it's a very grounded conversation to begin with before we just ask people to start speculating about, oh, we want to be like Amsterdam or we want to be like Paris or right. New York or whatever. That, that, that work is to come in, in the next phase of work. But I think just starting with um, a combination of us gathering a lot of facts about what's actually going on here and the, the trends that are occurring uh, and these conversations with the community about, well, what's your lived experience right now in Vancouver? And um, uh, then we'll move that into a set of questions amongst many groups, some of which will be people familiar with planning or familiar with economic development or with housing about uh, specific kinds of challenges and how we might uh, think past the usual fixes onto, onto future ones. But uh, I think we need to bring everybody along in that thought process. In the end, I think we want a plan that is uh, articulates a high-level vision of what we want to be but is also strategic in nature. And for that reason, uh, we see um, a year from now really getting into some fairly sharply defined uh, choices and engaging people in choices. Not One kind of plan is just listing all the things that would make everybody happy. And then they get that gets turned over to City Hall and good luck, hope, hope it all gets done. Yeah. That's not the kind of plan I think that would benefit Vancouver. I think it's one that actually makes some sharp choices and says – no, this is the way we want to go, and here are the investments that are needed. Here are the kinds of neighborhoods that we want to create going forward in the future. 
here's how we're going to engage our uh, university and business partners, here's how we're going to engage um, institutional and nonprofit sector partners to help us develop that city. So people are pretty clear. Right now you've got you know, a whole symphony of people, um, groups, institutions, businesses doing their thing, and it's not necessarily connected or aligned in any particular direction. Um, and so I think that's that's the hope here is that we can kind of, in the end, provide some unified uh, idea where we want to go and some some collaboration and direction on, on making that happen. Yeah. And, and just uh, thinking, like you mentioned Amsterdam, but are there other cities? Like, is this, are we kind of uh, well, in the, at the forefront of this type of, I kind think, of intentional? I, th- I think we are at the vanguard. And then um, Amsterdam kind of came to that, not in a very formal predetermined structure, Almost but the, the way that it evolved. Yeah. Uh, through, and I'd like to be a bit more explicit about that here. And I do think we're, we're, uh, we are on the, on the forefront of doing that level of intentional city planning. And that's, that's my passion. And I think that's Vancouver's a place that, where we can actually pull that off. We're a, a young, optimistic, ambitious city and uh, not without naysayers and skeptics. And that's all that's the case everywhere. Yeah, right. Yeah. But I think there's enough of a itch to scratch here amongst almost everyone that really wants us to be the best place on earth and the best place for their own families that, you know, right. let's give it a shot. In, in kind of keeping with that, that optimism, like in an ideal scenario, what does the city of Vancouver look like in the next 20 to 30 years for, for you? Well, if you didn't have to engage with anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'll just draw the map. And, yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, it had several dimensions to it. One is that I think it would um, be a um, an inclusive society. I, I do think there's a risk that prosperous cities will um, define themselves increasingly by uh, a set of business headquarters and then a fairly wealthy population and then a a sort of low-income population that serves them, whether those are hotel workers or restaurant workers. And everybody, the middle class, all lives somewhere else out in the far suburbs. And I I hope we can avoid that. So I would like to see us be a fairly diverse uh, community, for one. Um, And we're not alone in West Coast or other North American cities in that aspiration. But I think to really do that, we have to be really strategic and really thoughtful about our choices. I, I, I hope we are still looked at around the globe as a city of innovation and of high livability. I think uh, we, I think Larry and others put, put Vancouver on the map in that regard, and I think it's up to us to make the next generation of what that Vancouver is for people um, uh, so that we don't lose touch with that livability, which is a combination of our amazing setting in nature and the urban character that we have. Um, I think it's a place where we can reimagine um, the vast majority of our landscape, which is not the Larry Beasley world of downtown. It is the traditional Vancouver that's grown up um, largely in the automobile era. Um, it's a, Vancouver landscape is largely suburban, and how that fills in and becomes more urban, more walkable, more interesting and varied, I think is an enormous potential get through this plan. Um, I think that's where the future livability lies uh, for many, many people. And so making those walkable, connected neighborhoods that are more full service, you can 
walk to the corner store or the corner pub or whatever it happens to be. Um, they're more bikeable. They're more walkable. There's more frequent accessible transit near them. I think those kinds of things are part of that, what we loosely call a complete neighborhood, um, which I think can be a huge part of the Vancouver landscape and is also also a very exportable idea to many of the other cities in the lower mainland. Um, and so that sort of middle density um, kind of neighborhood, um, which in many ways makes up most of the landscape in European cities and cities elsewhere, uh, that kind of middle density, um, very kind of diverse, mixed use sort of, of environment, less auto-dependent. Right. Um, I actually do want to um, focus some energy on the economy here and what is the economic future of Vancouver. It's, it's beginning to diversify, which is fairly recent. I mean, when you think about it, Vancouver's the, the main pillars of our economy are still um, the export of natural resources, right. um, the, the port activity, tourism, and frankly, construction mostly around building strata. <laughs> Those have been the mainstays of the economy here. What's growing are health sector, are some of the green industry jobs, film is, is now big. So looking at these newer economic sectors and saying, how do those contribute to what Vancouver wants to be uh, and into jobs for more people uh, and into a more full spectrum of, of employment and skills? Um, so what are those nascent things? How do they tie back to the mothership of the universities here, the system here? Uh, how do they tie into that larger Cascadia concept? I think there's a big focus on the economy here where we're not going to direct the economy. You know, the economy thrives by being, uh, you know, perpetuating uh, innovation within itself. Right. But I think we can do the things that want to support the uh, that, that economic growth that we care about and uh, making sure that the economy returns benefit to the community uh, as a whole here. So, um, so I think that's another big focus uh, in the plan and the future of the community we want to have as a an economy here that um, employs all, employs a spectrum of, of of workers and households here, and returns benefit to the community. So. Sounds all right. <laughs> <laughs> um. Is, so if I understand the citywide plan, though, it's so if we're we're at the vanguard uh, of of this type of thing, it's it's more intentional than than other places. But as of right now, it's kind of like you know, in, in preparing for this, you know, it seems like you know, Mayor uh, Kennedy Stewart is saying it's an exciting journey, that type of thing. Yes. But it's it's fairly at this point, it's still kind of nebulous, A right? Bit like nebulous. It's, yeah. It's and and how long do you think this takes? Um, and, and and is there an end date, or yeah. is this just a uh, you know a? Well, I think the the conversation around city building will continue and should continue continuously forever, right? right? But I think the 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 plan, which in the, in essence is really the kind of city strategy level that I'm talking about, um, that's a deliverable uh, for me and my staff and the city folks working on it for this city council. So by the end of their term in 2022 and, and a few months before that, so it doesn't become a political football, <laughs> frankly, want to have that thing delivered to council, that, that clear direction of what kind of city we want to be. Uh, how are we going to get there in terms of broad strokes, in terms of the big investments, the big sweeping um, policy changes that needs to be done. So what you're going to see this spring coming forward is a much more 
elevated an intensive level of community conversation, beginning that what kind of city do we want to be. As I said, uh, between uh, November when we did sort of a soft launch and now and until about uh, March, it's a, a quieter level of conversation, just mm-hmm. trying to get people engaged that we're even doing a plan and what does that kind of mean and and how do we get your friends and colleagues involved in that conversation? That's the conversation going on right now, the build up essentially. Um, and so there will be big events. There'll be a lot of use of libraries, um, community centers, neighborhood houses, uh, business associations, um, neighborhood groups to really activate the conversation when we get into the making choices phase and really which is a 2021 thing um that's going to be that that's really where it's the rubber's going to hit the road so to speak uh and that'll be very pretty interesting yeah <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't but as and it's not to keep on this but i mean we've had a couple people that talked about the citywide plan um somewhat critically yeah. before and and i think as i understood their criticism it was look we're a city made up of many yes. unique communities with different needs and uh you know sh- what works in shaughnessy doesn't work in renfrew yep. type thing it's not a one size fits all no that's i think that's a kind of mischaracterization that's of right we need to recognize that we will continue to be a city of neighborhoods and diverse neighborhoods and different uh, different geographies and so forth and so on. If we only consider ourselves that and we only plan at that sort of micro scale, I think we're losing uh, sight of some of the bigger challenges around, as I said, sea level rise, uh, immigration, right, right. the climate challenges. How do we connect everybody either by transit or by walking or bike? And those, those bigger scale questions, um, uh, employment for a broad variety of people, those things get lost when you get down to that district or even smaller scale. You, you can't conceivably uh, find adequate answers to those larger questions. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's one or the other. I think we'll always have a level of, of neighborhood planning and engagement. And we're not talking about tossing out the existing neighborhood plans. They may need to be evaluated when we get this sort of high-level strategy in mind and say, what are the implications for some of those? For example, like I said, in sort of introducing new mid-scale density in, in neighborhoods and affordability in neighborhoods, it may mean looking back at some of those policies again. But, um, you know, the, the neighborhood is a powerful organizing unit. It's, it's what people recognize outside of their immediate home as kind of the thing they belong to right even more than the city right Right. or more than canada it's like this is my neighborhood and that's a very very human um um, impetus and and reality really that the planners and and people in in government have to to recognize and deal with so it's not a supplanting of that i think it's really a more broad systems look at what is going to make that set of neighborhoods uh, endure and be healthy uh, and transform in the way that they will need to transform in a more um, thoughtful, logical way. Mm-hmm. There, there's, <laughs> I'd like to actually. And <laughs> sorry, I keep cutting How's you off. That for no, the no, no, no. You think the skeptics would be convinced by what? Yeah, I <laughs> <know>. <laughs> 
Uh, I was just we we talk a lot about NIMBYism in on on the show yeah. as well, and and there's obviously a lot of resistance in a lot of neighborhoods uh, to even light density. Never mind um, you know, multifamily developments and that sort of thing. So how do you how do you balance the needs of developers, residents, and, and well, here's one thing I learned uh, doing this work in in Portland. Um, I, I came into a situation where this this notion of neighborhood density was just front and center it was top of mind it was eating up all the political energy in the city um and i did a bit of a timeout and said let's engage these neighborhood leaders and many of the skeptics included and um really not let's not talk about density anymore numbers at all let's talk about the quality of the neighborhood you want to live in and 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 how that should be and we got to things like the walk to commercial services we got to you know my my er elderly parents want downsize but don't want to have to leave the neighborhood they want to stay i want my kids to be able to walk safely to school these sort of things those are the building blocks of a healthy neighborhood and if you isolate those qualities they um they're the ingredients for a future mix of a neighborhood that is to say they don't depend on exactly how it is now. And so what we did was, then the next step was before we got into any numbers, we began to do a visual survey. What what kind of buildings appeal to you? And in the end of that dialogue, we came forward to city council, and I had uh, this massive, what had been sort of skeptics and so forth, saying really to the city council, it's about design, not density. They were finding four-unit buildings being more compatible if they were well-designed with single-family homes than a badly designed single-family home or a poorly designed. So that notion and, and then the ancillary where they could find if we could have this many more units in our neighborhood, it would actually support a local blank uh, commercial service of some kind. Then they were valid trade-offs to make. And so I think it's that nature of conversation we're going to have to get into um, because I think in Vancouver, um, we really only have two known templates for building uh, over the last several decades. The Tower and Podium, which was Larry's thing downtown, and it works downtown. Or the single-family home. We don't have that in between. We just don't, There are some of those from the 40s and 50s and early 60s where there were two, three-story apartment buildings built and that kind of thing. But they're kind of the forgotten piece of the fabric. We don't have a lot of other examples to look to in Vancouver for that more interesting middle mix. And so that, I think, is a huge um, conversation to be had um, in the right way. Because I think the, the natural fear from some people who live in a sort of stable... A single-family neighborhood is oh you're talking towers in my neighborhood right and that's not the only choice here so that what needs to be worked through and then looking at the economics of how does that work with vancouver's land prices and construction prices right. will be a really interesting uh, uh conversation to have the other thing i would say is that uh many neighborhoods which are the poster child for those stable relatively um moderate to high income neighborhoods they've lost population in the last census yeah. <laughs> the school <laughs> populations are declining uh they don't meet people on the street anymore there are more storefront vacancies in their commercial districts and people there are coming forward saying you know we got to do something about this because the neighborhood's not healthy it may look the same 
but it's not healthy any right. longer. And people are aging in place and also saying, I really don't want to leave the neighborhood, but I'm living in a you know four-bedroom home, and I don't need something that big. I don't want to take care of it. So there's a, a generational shift uh, on the elder end of the spectrum and on the younger end of the spectrum. I grew up in this neighborhood, but there's no way I can afford to come back and live here anymore. Right. So there's a whole new conversation to be had that's a little bit different than the strict NIMBY conversation that may have been prevalent a decade ago. Right. Because it does seem like, in some respects, it seems like those those adults now that are saying, I grew up in this neighborhood, I can't afford to come back to this neighborhood, in, in a lot of respects, I don't want to, the neighborhood's not the same anymore, yeah. right? Like yeah. they, It does seem like they're, we're getting to... Uh, in certain neighborhoods, kind of a uh, a hollowed out kind of crisis mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, moment, right? Where there's it's just like there's no that's the, right. The life is is gone. That's right. Huh. <laughs> there's a, where, well, where to go from here? Man? <laughs> well, there's another dimension too, which is not that, but that I'd like to get to, which is a little bit more. It may seem more like inside baseball to some of the listeners here, but. I actually think cities around the globe are not only the places where the, the most innovation is happening, they're also the places that are accepting the most responsibility for change. And because, and we're obviously very aware in Vancouver of the downloading of functions from the province onto Vancouver without money coming with it, right? Mm-hmm. And what it's put cities um, around the globe in, um, and particularly acute in North America, is... Um, we have all these demands on us, but none of their fiscal resources. And so, and there's a limited ability to increase taxes and so forth. So rather than just ignore that as part of this plan, why don't we use that question to help ground this plan and push it forward and say, what are the kind of new uh, governance concepts we need to explore? Who are our partners uh, in these efforts to build a better city? And really make this a plan not just for the mayor and council of Vancouver, but the plan for Vancouver for the school board, for the port, for the board of trade, for the universities, for TransLink, for Metro, for the big players who all have a stake in the game here, mm-hmm. um, and for community groups. Uh, and say, like, what's your part of all of this if we... Don't just depend on City Hall to do everything. It's, it's That's not going to be possible. Even if we look for some new increments of revenue resources for the city, which is all a good exercise to do as well, I do think this question about the governance, as I say, like whose responsibility is this, what is your part, uh, I think that has to get built in early into the conversation. Um, and Otherwise, the plan will be an empty strategy. It'll be a strategy, mm-hmm. but it won't have the legs to carry it forward. Mm-hmm. So, so that's a piece of it. And again, that's pretty somewhat removed from this neighborhood level design conversation that we were just having. And so this plan has to produce in my mind, some deliverables like that spatial plan. What is the future of growth and density in, in neighborhood form? Uh, what is the investment plan on the part of the city and its um, partner agencies and so forth? Um, what is um, what is that governance strategy that's a 2.0 of how cities and regions do government looking forward into the next uh, through this next century um, uh, and a, a really clear integrated policy framework so we're not having disconnected and competing policies those four things I think need to be the principal outputs uh, of this strategy um, 
And then in successive ways, you can get more detailed into some of those particular uh, four-year capital plans for the investments into uh, revisions to the zoning and development bylaw. All of that more detailed work can come uh, in the next year or two following the adoption of the high-level strategy. Mm -hmm. but, um, but I think if we ignore this governance and finance question, we're, we're going to end up with a plan that can't be implemented. Right, right. right. Feels like we've been maybe seeing the the trees and not the forest for a long time in Vancouver potentially. <laughs> so yeah, it well, like some some higher level strategies need to be put in place. And, and I think it is a way of holding the mirror up and saying, "What have we not been doing here?" But right. that still would be exciting to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a, a part of this exercise. Is yeah. this type of conversation happening in the other in Burnaby and Surrey? Like, is this? It does seem like this is. Uh, Obviously, we're talking specifically the city of Vancouver here, but how do how do is there an integration uh, in the region with this? Or? Really, really important point. I'm glad you asked that. I I, I imagine that conversations a bit like this are happening in in sort of private quarters here and yeah. there, or in, in coffee table conversations. I don't know. I'm not aware of any formalized yeah. conversation. I, a, it doesn't. I haven't heard of anything this bold. But there's a big opportunity to um, kind of lash the the update that Metro will be doing to its regional land use plan that TransLink is doing to its now what will be called the Transport 2050 plan. Uh, the port is now just about to engage in some scenario planning, and UBC is about to begin a new round of planning for for UBC and the surrounding lands. So I think there's an opportunity to export this conversation and broaden it um, uh, and uh, that would be very exciting because I think in many ways uh, many of the answers are at the regional scale, regional right. cooperation. I totally agree with you. Yeah. So there's a larger conversation. It's in, in the Cascadia is also yes. an interesting component as and well. And I think that one's ripe. I think they're, you know, we're, you're now seeing private sector leadership from Microsoft and others wanting that connection between Seattle and Vancouver. Yeah. The, the, uh, the economies of, of of Portland as well as Seattle and Vancouver share a lot in common, but they also have complementary um, aspects. For example, you know, um, uh, Seattle. Uh, if, if you look at, even further south at, at San Francisco, is really kind of the mothership of all of the of most of the software development and the, the the social media development. Seattle with Microsoft uh, and with the retail side on Amazon and doing all that piece, uh, digital retail, has a niche there that is on the software side. Portland, interesting, quietly in the background has become the hardware capital. It's where Intel has its big, big, big operations and there's a, a, a wafer company there and all that kind of stuff. Um, and what is Vancouver's role in that digital economy piece? Well, one version is we're going to get a few pods of those larger companies because mm-hmm. uh, it's a livable place, has great immigration policies, which is an advantage. Is there something else for Vancouver in that? Not just, you know, uh, Microsoft part two or Google yeah. part two, but yeah. but its own identity that contributes to that larger Cascadia and West Coast e- economic complex. That would That's a really interesting conversation uh-huh. to do. And then how does that that uh, moderate high-speed rail connection in the future really amplify those connections and that synergy? To me, that's just a really interesting yeah. piece there <laughs> to explore. 
you know, and we're doing our own work in infrastructure now. When you think about um, the Broadway subway to eventually to UBC, which I hope happens, and I think there's a lot of energy around that making it happen. And there are certainly concerns on the neighborhoods in between uh, the current plan to extend it to Arbutus and UBC, which will take some neighborhood planning to do to sort of get comfortable around what is the level of and kind of development at Jericho and in those spaces in between. But that's a huge uh, investment that is not just people moving, but is also building an infrastructure for an economy. Because when you think about that so-called brain train between SFU on one end and UBC on the other, and then the Emily Carr, the VGH, um, these other nascent, the new St. Paul's, these other pieces that are hooked on, that's a, a necklace of, of economic pearls mm-hmm. that can just grow and grow and becomes an identity maker for Vancouver. Um, so that's a big one. I, I do hope at a smaller scale we're able to get a kind of inner city streetcar up and running again that uh, may actually run all the way to the Fraser River up through the Arbutus Corridor, but, but right. essentially link Granville Island, um, the, um, the the South Shore through South Falls Creek, and then up around and link into downtown. So you've got this sort of people mover that circulates around the central uh, core uh, of the city. And I hope ultimately um, through TransLink investments, we connect the North Shore more directly. We need a train. Right. I mean, there's only yeah. so much you can do by carrying people across the water in small craft. And, <laughs> you know, whether it's a tunnel or a bridge or something uh, – that's also a huge future move there that I think begins to tie this metro area together along with the planned uh, TransLink investments for the right. rest of the lower mainland. There's a, a huge need to move um, millions of people in the future daily uh, by transit. Um, that requires TransLink to think bigger than it's thinking right now. And so when we talk about this big future transformative thinking um TransLink should be doing a 100-year vision and then backing that down to the closer 10, 20, 30-year investment plans. When you look at the Paris metro, it's 125 years old. It's continued to carry an increasingly growing population by adding just small links and modernizing the, the cars and so forth. But that basic template has served Paris, which is whatever it is, 7 right. million people, right. since the late 1800s. I mean, that's a huge investment of really good foresight uh well why can't vancouver region do something similar to that and just lay down that basic those basic bones that basic infrastructure and say that's a big part of where we're going right right people aren't going to fly around with jet packs to get from this yeah. part of town to that part of town they're going to use transit yeah. um so it's those kind of big moves that I think we need to articulate, and those play to livability as much as they play to the economy and so forth, and, and to climate change response. So right. looking for those multiple wins for these big moves, I think, is kind of the interesting, sexy part of what's ahead of us here. Yeah. I mean, all of all of what you've said, including, you know, that it's not really, you know, at the nation state, it, yeah. the cities <laughs> are... Like, can cities save the world? Cities are it. I, I think it's the best way to save the world, honestly, in terms of the the unit of governance that can take leadership with new ideas and and pl- plugging those new ideas into reality. Um, it's going to require more provincial and national resources to pull it off. But I don't think we can wait for the national-provincial mindset to shift. 
I think, and to come up with these notions. I think cities have to lead that way and pull those resources um, in through um, uh, through politics and through education, through participation by some of those other key holders of the purses in our scenario planning process. And part of scenario planning is if we don't do something, what is the cost of doing nothing or cost of doing business as usual? Right. It's not as if it's not a cost to, like, the cost avoided by not investing in the thing we think should be really good doesn't mean there's no cost. Right. It means the cost shows up somewhere else and it's often worse, um, whether it's economic costs, social costs, environmental costs. So shifting that mindset, um, Canada is becoming a more urban nation. And you're seeing that playing out in the last election. It'll be very interesting as more of Canada becomes, has to grapple with these urban issues. And when I say urban, I'm including the suburbs in those mm-hmm. increasingly urban issues. That's where the voting population is. And, and so I think that cities can get out in front. I think a lot of, um, there'll be a lot of swing in the national, um, consciousness toward supporting this kind of, uh, um, community building, city building, um, economy building going forward. Hmm. Yeah, well, the future favors the bold. <laughs> <laughs> no small dreams, but uh, <laughs> yeah. but uh, but there are things we can do along the way, and and part of what we have adopted as part of our bold uh, city plan work is uh, a stream of activity that we've labeled actual labeled action while planning, and so those are the smaller moves. Sometimes those are those representative or teasers of those bigger ideas I've been talking about, but they're things that acknowledge we can't just wait for this three years of the plan preparation to make any movement. Right. So there's like Broadway is a perfect example of one of those things or yeah. uh, some additional work in the climate change arena on the climate emergency will be coming forward in the fall with another set of short-term actions we can do to kind of accelerate that and so forth. There are pieces we're doing with uh, reconciliation and inclusion that don't need to wait, um, even though those will be built on and become part of the, of the citywide plan. So I think this notion of being, um, pretty deft and fleet of foot even while we're doing this big thing mm-hmm. is really important for us um, to uh, maintain trust and credibility if if not only that but to make progress on, on a bunch of fronts do you have a do you have a infrastructure plan that's kind of on the radar right now like coming soon that you're really excited about well i do think the, the one the biggest single one that's live right now is the broadway, broadway subway you yeah. know it's it's really big you know, and there we tend to think of infrastructure in terms of transportation as kind of the first thing that comes to mind, and that's an obvious category. Uh, two other things I would point out, though. Um, one is that um, we've increasingly acknowledged to become aware of how old our water and sewer systems are in Vancouver. These are, in many cases, 100-year-old systems, and they're not adequate. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about Gastown the other day and yeah. the areas around. Specific- wow, I was, I was <laughs> yeah. just thinking the Nymo Street, which is, yeah. I think. Right, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so uh, all of a sudden we've woken up and realized, man, we've got a hole to dig ourselves out of financially to replace systems. And then which ones do we not just need to replace but to upsize? And is upsizing the only way? So part of the paradigm shift here and the thinking around sewer in particular since we're under pressure to clean up uh, False Creek and others where we're just pouring in, you know, metals and uh, uh, other particulates into the water supply, which are harming the fish, is to think about how do we treat stormwater and particularly different 
completely and different from sewers, uh, and to trap much more water on the surface, um, either on rooftops or in yards or uh, with settlement ponds along the way to actually do some of that work. So rather than just spend all our money building big, big pipes, which is the gray infrastructure, what if that's mixed with green infrastructure? And so there's a, there's a, a program underway now that will become part of this uh, city plan, uh, but is being thought through now about how, how what are the kind of money savings and environmental savings you get out of a twin gray-green infrastructure approach. Uh, that's one. The other big infrastructure one, which I think we'll be facing soon, is what will our response to sea level rise be? We, know, we now have flood inundation maps that are pretty clear about 2050 and 2021, and those dates, uh, the flooding uh, that's pegged to those dates may actually come closer in, in time, advance more, because the climate is changing faster. Every time we get a new report, it's yeah. accelerating, yeah, it right? right? Yeah. Uh, and we know what parts of the Vancouver shoreline are vulnerable. Uh, and so what is our approach there? And just for time? some of the listeners at home that live close to the shore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> where are we most vulnerable? Uh, well, names? <laughs> well, there are lots of, there are lots of places. There are obviously some places where we have um, tall bluffs and so forth if you, if you right. go west and, and uh, even down to the Fraser on some parts of it. But there are many parts, and people know, uh, they're actually fairly close to water levels, either on the river or on right. the water bodies on the, the north side here, uh, including False Creek. Um, and so one approach is to simply say, okay, how tall is it going to be, the, the new sea level rise, and how high do we need to build a barrier wall? Right. Well, that also has the effect of potentially taking away the iconic identity of Vancouver, which is that close relationship to the water, the seawall, and so forth and so on. And someone's view. And, well, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> likely. <laughs> so is there uh, an adaptive technology over time which actually thinks about the shoreline a bit differently? And um, maybe it's not a, a tall wall, because wh however tall you build it, it probably won't be tall enough. So rather than pour your, all your money in there, what do we do to pull some things away from the shoreline or not allow new development right close to it, and then um, do some things over time, both by uh, elevating floor areas for new buildings, um, building in some uh, actually more lowlands that might serve both the environment and recreation and, and uh, visual quality, um, and realize we don't have to have all the answers in two years or five years, but that we just have to have an adaptable shoreline. So over right. time, we can make it there. But when you think about roadways or big investments, ah, we, maybe we better step back before we spend hundreds of millions on all these things and say, eh, maybe that's not where it goes or, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Um. You know, well, we got have this I, section called the five wire. I, I just yeah. have two things. Like one, in terms of just the compartments in your, <laughs> how do you sleep at night? With all, I mean, you're juggling a lot of balls. It's kind of incredible, right? Uh, but one thing that strikes me is you've you've been in the job three and a half years, yeah, uh, and you have a fair a fairly intimate knowledge of the city already. Like how did how long did it take you to get caught up to speed? In Vancouver, and and what was yeah. uh, and and was there some was there a big surprise that that happened or or that about Vancouver that you didn't think was well? I think a couple of things uh, surprised me, and then these surprises came relatively early. I, I do make I'm I'm a student of cities in general, and I I do make it a conscious effort to know the city that I'm, and I've not been a short timer in most of these cities. I've been there a, a while and in this job. So I was looking at Vancouver as a, a big investment of my time. And so the importance of learning 
intimately learning the community for me was really important. And I still am, I have to say. There's still people will name a street uh, of some kind of minor street. Now, well, where is that? Or, you know, I'm still it's learning. It's an alley in the West End. <laughs> uh, but I, I tried to learn the physical city, the history, and the personalities engaged in all of these conversations fairly early on. Um, so uh, I, I made some some work of that. Um, well, I want to get back to your question, if you could rephrase the Oh, the question the, the uh, about just how long it got you, how long uh, it took you to get caught up to speed with Vancouver, and then if there was any, oh the surprises, yeah, yeah any yeah. surprises. Um, two things that occurred to me relatively early. Um, one, one I would say was positive, and one is not negative, but but just an interesting challenge. The positive one was um, coming out of the U.S. context into Canada. Um, there's a fundamental core social belief that uh, government, including local government, has a legitimate role in um, the overall health and well-being of the citizenry. In the U.S., that's always under challenge. The trust in government is very low in the U.S., and it's part of that national Trumpian dialogue, which is drain the swamp, which really turns into let's just replace the swamp with my my alligators instead of your alligators. I think there's a, a more fundamental belief that um, in the sort of mixed economy here of, of private enterprise and government having distinct but complementary roles and that there is a, an actual role for government and the, the, the bedrock of the healthcare and education systems here is almost unchallenged in Canada where that's just always... <laughs> at debate in the U.S. And so the, walking into that situation where it's not as if, you know, I have to stand up in a community meeting like I did in the U.S. and say, I'm from the government, I'm really here to help, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's just not the same entree and conversation. So that, that part, I think, w- was good. And I think Vancouver uh, has had over uh, many, many decades a very, um, um, you know, responsive and, and um forward-looking for the most part city government trying to respond to actual community concerns and be actively listening to those and trying to shepherd the future so i I think i inherited a good situation there one thing that was a bit more surprising was in many ways vancouver's a small town and there's a lot of parochialism in the politics and in the in the development industry and all that kind of thing and not bad guys at all. I mean, they're very capable, actually, and many are quite forward-looking. But there's a, a sort of a, an insular piece of Vancouver that we are Vancouver, we know how to do it, and uh, we're us. And uh, yeah. and I think I'm, I'm one of those, a little bit of a provocateur and change agent, um, not by going around with a sledgehammer, but by provoking with questions and maybe some different ideas. Uh, so... That's a fun challenge, actually, uh, to have. But that was a bit of surprising as to the parochial side of, yeah, of Vancouver. Right. Is there? Would you say? And this is not any industry in particular, but we often think about Vancouver as exporting in in terms of, yes. of building techniques and and development companies. And yeah. was it is it due to like arrogance or is it due to what what was the um, or no, just, I, or just, we know what we're doing. In fact, everybody's looking at us for how to do yeah. it. Yeah. So. Well, Vancouver uh, is a good exporter of both ideas and of technologies. Um, but I wouldn't be so. Um, we shouldn't be so arrogant as to believe we're the only ones. There's yeah. a lot of innovation going on around the globe, and um, and but we're just part of one of that 
sort of constellation of learning cities and we export knowledge and we import knowledge. And, um, so I would put it more in that frame. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say, um, uh, we're certainly have the capability of, uh, leading in some areas, for example, in the green buildings area. I think we, we have an opening there to really accelerate that and become a standard bearer for, for the globe. We're not alone. There are cities in in uh, in Germany and in in Europe that are also at least as far along as we are. Um, so we shouldn't be too arrogant, but I think we should put ourselves in that vanguard of of learning cities. And that that green uh, building, green infrastructure piece is one of those. Um, in terms of the, just the raw green infrastructure, I think um, Portland was probably a couple decades ahead of where Vancouver is in some of that stormwater treatment and all those kinds of issues. So we need to be able to learn from other mm -hmm, places mm -hmm. and, and really create that kind of compact of forward looking cities so that it's not simply a kind of one upmanship or sort of a, you know, more of a, a salesmanship, but it's actually a, an actual learning exchange. Mm -hmm, um, right. Vancouver's got a lot of credibility in that realm. And I mean, we have people visiting constantly here. We had a great exchange over the fall with people from Amsterdam and, and from Holland. And, um, uh, the same is true with cities from Japan and so forth. So I think we're just lucky to be in that league of, of forward looking cities. Well, well, maybe we'll leave it there, but we, we have taken a lot of your time, Gil, but we have this quick uh, segment called the five wire, uh -huh. five quick questions about Vancouver, but also your lived experience in Vancouver. So uh, can you stick yeah. around for that? Sure. Okay. So that. question number one is favorite neighborhood in Vancouver. Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> Portland. And <I'll> be, yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting how many people I bump into say, hey, you're the guy from Portland, right? And I say, we really like Portland. And can you export some of that, bring some of that here, yeah. import it? And I think specifically. <laughs> you know, I think part of it is breweries, yeah. uh, but part of it is that more... Um, uh, mixed scale in neighborhoods where you might have the three-story apartment next to a single-family home next to a, a bar or next to a, that that kind of finer right. grain fabric piece, which I think is an interesting uh, piece. I'd like to see more Vancouver heads, neighborhoods take that on. Um, I, you know, I really don't want to uh, single out a single neighborhood. I, I'll tell you where <laughs> I live. I live in the Olympic Village, partly because it is that middle urban uh, uh, sort of form close to the water, which I, I like. Um, it's lacking retail and restaurant at the moment, although there's a little bit more happening on 2nd Avenue than was before. I think that was a fault of the planners then to not deliberately get more retail activity in there. Right, um, right. Uh, but the rest they did pretty well. Um, and it's also a choice for me because I can walk to work every day up to City Hall and City back. Hall, right? And so I get at least my two or two and a half miles in every day. So I get my minimum steps in. But uh, <laughs> um, And just being on the water, which is a really uh, a nice thing. And it's fairly centrally located. And you can walk one way to one transit line and walk the other way to another one. So that works uh, works pretty well for me. Perfect. So it's a good one. Favorite bar or restaurant? Oh, my Again, you guys are putting me on the spot here. I know I'm not going to make somebody unhappy. Uh, uh, one little restaurant that I have enjoyed going to is in Gastown, uh, a little Italian one called De Beppe. And the reason I like it is because it reminds me of uh, restaurants I used to haunt in, in North Beach in San Francisco. It's a kind of real authentic, um, not pretentious Italian place. Have you been? I want to go tonight, actually. That sounds amazing. That's uh... <laughs> 
So I, I'm I'm not getting paid by them. I haven't. Yeah, they, yeah, yeah. They'd be surprised to hear this, maybe. But uh, that's one. I mean, there are lots of lots of good restaurants I'm discovering in San Francisco. I come from a couple of food towns, San Francisco and actually yeah. Portland are both big food towns right. outside of New York. So uh, I think Vancouver has a way to go to build out its kind of restaurant infrastructure if you will yeah. um there tend to be the good ones tend to suddenly become m- m- mini chains like oh there's a flying pig here and now yeah, there's one there, yeah, yeah, yeah. One there and are all good but yeah. it's like we need some more just independent ones right right <laughs> right um, uh, that's a good one uh go ahead matt well this is interesting uh from a well maybe not from a planning perspective what is one book that you would recommend to anyone listening oh boy um john grisham yeah. <laughs> well, there's a there's a, a a tough one in the end, potentially hopeful one on on climate change uh, challenge globally that that I've read um, uh, recently, and I'm blanking on the title now. It's not the inconvenient truth by Al Gore, but it has a yeah. it's like the uninhabitable Earth. I think is the is the title of it by uh, Wallace Wells, um, David Wallace Wells, I think is his name. I'd recommend that as reading because it's it's sobering, but it doesn't say this is the end of the earth and right. end of book it says to scale up to this challenge we need everybody every sector uh the scale of investment we haven't seen since the second world war and doing something globally uh, to take it on and i so that's a sober read i think um um uh, maybe I'll, I'll leave it there there are other yeah other yeah. books no but that's that one that uh that's yeah. I know we've been talking about the, climate change a lot lately. I know yeah. it feels like. But a, this one is, you know, he's not a scientist. He's a journalist, and he but he's studied the science and has really boiled it down. And I think makes a pretty cogent, um, somewhat frightening and compelling case for action. And so right. I, I'd rec- I'd recommend that one because I think it is the the existential challenge of our times. That's yeah, a, that's a good know. one. Uh, what is one piece of advice that you'd give your eighteen year old self? Hmm. You know, it's really along the lines of do what's in your heart, do what really you're passionate about, and it's, even if it does, even if it defies certain advice or or structures, <laughs> but follow your passion, kind of thing. I, I just it's maybe it sounds a little bit uh, old and tired or or trite, even, but it's not trite in the end. It's it's really what's guided me through my career. I could have done something else along the way with this passion for cities and city building i knew was in my blood from pretty early like high school days maybe and just kept following that and it's open doors wherever i've I've gone so i i think uh, i was about 18 when i really set myself down this this road in some ways and so um that part of the advice i gave myself then i think i would give myself now excellent (laughs) Last, uh, what is something you, you have bought, and we've talked about steps already, so I, <laughs> I have a guess. What is something that you've bought in the last year or two for under $1,000 that has changed your life? Are you oh playing my. Fitbit? Or what are you, what are you gonna <laughs> yeah. Well, I had a Fitbit for several years, and it, it broke, and I haven't uh, used it since. But now the Fitbit essentially is on your iPhone. On your iPhone, right? yeah, and, yeah. And I think it probably cost me $1,000, my latest I- iPhone. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, um so that's probably um, it, it's the blessing and the curse. The old the old iPhone, the yeah, smartphone, right? Because right? you're you're always connected. I had the the luxury of taking some time off over the winter holidays and went to Mexico for three weeks. And I deliberately left my work cell phone here in Vancouver, so I could not be chained to it. 
Yeah. Um, and it was very freeing. I got to tell you, I God. did take my personal phone mostly because it has my camera in it. All right. Um, uh, but I wasn't receiving work emails and I gave my assistant and a couple people at, at work, including the city manager who did something along the same lines. That number is an emergency. I didn't get, nobody bothered me, which was really, really nice. Wow. And yet now I'm back for the last three, four days and I'm back in the swing, but having that break, yeah. um, including the break from the technological chains that we've wrapped around ourselves almost unconsciously no was, a, was a huge, huge break uh, for me. So what one just final, and this, I know we're wrapping up and this is a broad question, but it's, it can be a one word. Are, are you optimistic about the future of Vancouver? I am. If I weren't, I wouldn't be here doing this. I, I, I've grown to love the city in the three or so years I've been here. And I feel um, really as positive as when I first was arriving and being recruited for the job. Um, Gregor Robertson, the last mayor, um, kind of pulled me out of San Francisco with this interesting hook about how what a wonderful city it was. And he and the city manager were interviewing me. And then I turned around and I accepted the job because I thought, um, unlike San Francisco, which was kind of mired in uh, small ball politics amongst their equivalent of their city council there and not making the kind of forward leaps, Vancouver seemed like a place that really was optimistic and wanted to make the next big move. So that's why I accepted the job. And then a week later, uh, Gregor Robertson's in the paper saying, yeah, this guy from San Francisco is coming up. He's going to solve our housing crisis for us. <laughs> Thanks a lot, buddy. <laughs> okay, give me a week or two, all right? So, uh, but even that being said, and we did deliver a major housing uh, strategy um, for a, a 10-year affordable housing strategy that we're now implementing. Um, and we'll see if it's enough, uh, but at least it's a credible approach to that. Um, and, you know... Um, Despite all the conversations and everything that's happened in the three years, uh, I feel still very optimistic about Vancouver. And we've been able to deliver some big things so far, and I'm looking forward to even bigger things. So um, I'm optimistic. I, I am too, uh, largely as a result of this conversation. I was going to so, say, yeah, thank, <laughs> thank <Sure>. you, Gil. <laughs> uh, Gil Kelly, thank okay. you for yeah, uh, thank coming you for your on. Time. That was fantastic. Thank you both for having me. Okay. I So there you have it, folks, our discussion with Gil Kelly, Chief Planner at the City of Vancouver. Really enjoyed that conversation with Gil, Matt. And uh, I feel like for a longer interview, like that was one of our longer interviews to date, it flew by. I feel like we were just getting comfortable. Like we could have probably ran for another hour. You know what? And the best part about this is Gil promised he'd come back. He did. He did. And he, we've, uh, we've, we've been like, it's, I feel like I'm, uh, just, just finished a really great date and I'm trying hard not to text that person. <laughs> Cause I'm, I want to invite Gil back for two next days. Episode. Yeah. We got to give Gil at least two we, days. Do we have to give him two days? But really, really, we're going to just try and get him as a third host. Swipe right, Gil. Yeah. <laughs> Did he like us? I don't know. <laughs> we're, we're, anyway, it was uh, we're, we're going to get him back. Uh, the citywide plan is in the early stages. Uh, he's going to come back and talk about it. He promised. Uh, the other thing, the big takeaway, I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about here. But, but one is we've had other people come on and criticize the citywide plan. And I think, uh, myself included, we misunderstood it. Yes. Like, in my mind, the citywide plan was kind of taking over for the official community plans, uh, kind of a one-size-fits-all uh, and it's definitely not. This is this is a, a larger 
uh, bolder kind of initiative than I even understood. Well, the critique has been that it's unnecessary in a lot of cases. And I, I was convinced that it's very much needed. Like this is the most, one of the most necessary things we're doing. We're at a crossroads. Yes. Folks. We're at a crossroads. Well, the example that he gave, uh, it was Amsterdam as well. It's, it's that it's, it, you need an identity, I think, to move forward, some kind of cohesiveness. That's right. Absolutely. So hope you enjoyed that. What else do we got before we're going? One, Mark Ting is coming back on the show. Yes. And with not the show, sorry. Mark Ting is coming back on Vancouver Real Estate Live. That's February 19th, 7 p.m. on YouTube. The nice thing about Mark Ting, he's, he's what we call a twofer. He's a heavy-duty real estate investor, knows a ton about real estate. He also knows a lot about finances in general. Right. He's a CBC's financial guy. Yeah. Uh, very bright guy. I've uh, never heard you call anyone a twofer, but you say that that's what we've that's, been calling. Yeah, we, yeah. It's, uh, it you? sounds like it's old hat around here, but I've, <laughs> it's the first time I'm ever hearing this. In any event, you can bring all your questions to yes. YouTube. <laughs> YouTube, Vancouver Real Estate Podcast on YouTube. We're going live 7 p.m. on February 19th. That's going to take place at the Bento Box, live at the Bento Box, Ramey at RamyFilms.com. The quality of these videos, I don't know, I, I can't say about anything else. But Beautiful we look, films. We definitely look like we're in a movie. So for all your video and marketing needs, talk to Ramey at RamyFilms.com. He's I, phenomenal. I, I, and a great guy stuff. to work with. No he's, kidding. Uh, he's, he's a very bright guy. He's got guy. a lot of ideas. He does have a lot of ideas. Yeah. The spring market's ramping up. If you're looking to list, you want to think about listing, talk about listing with a professional, of course, get in touch with Adam and I. But also head over to VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com where we have tons of resources like our Livewire. That's our weekly newsletter. We got Deal of the Month. We just sent out some assignments at cost. The stats went out before, almost before the Real Estate Board had There's no reason not to be on that list. It's uh, Yeah, it's a great list to be on. We also got tools like private client services. And Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You basically get realtor-level information at your fingertips. It's free, it's available on our site, and it's the best resource out there. We've tried them all. That's absolutely correct. If you want to talk about that, anything at all real estate related or anything at all really, give me a call, 778-847-2854 or matt at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Or you can try me at 778-866-4574 or adam at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. We also got that secret line. Info at vancouverrealestatepodcast.com. Speaking of needing a coach... Take care, guys. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. Hey everyone, pardon the interruption. We just want to take a quick minute to thank the following sponsors who make this show possible. We want to take a minute to tell you about Holy House, a nonprofit organization that provides community building programs and tenant support services to low-income seniors, veterans, families, and vulnerable residents in the downtown east side and across the lower mainland. Melissa from our team has been volunteering at Holy House. Melissa, what's been your experience? 
honestly, it's been so fulfilling just to spend a few hours a week in the community and watch how the staff really transforms these vulnerable communities from the inside out, starting with just small things, right? Playing games, drinking coffee, having some simple conversations that you wouldn't necessarily think are super fulfilling. And you come out just feeling like you've really made an impact and connected with the community. And you've been to multiple buildings, but you're playing games, drinking coffee. Yeah. You know, serving food sometimes. And you made some friends along the way. I've made some friends along the way. It's really helped me be more present, actually, in those moments of just, you know, realizing how simple life can be to make an impact, right? Fantastic. And if you want to learn more, you can definitely check out Jenny Konkin, co-founder of Holy House, who is a past guest fan favorite on the show, or head over to holyhouse.ca where you can donate or volunteer. And they're looking for both donations and they definitely like volunteers. That's holyhouse.ca. Vancouver needs your help. Be part of the solution. We are also sponsored by Oakland Realty. This is our real estate brokerage, best brokerage in the city, hands down. If you are in the industry, a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody just looking to make a change, new culture, new energy, new resources, head over to oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. That's oakland.com slash join, type in VRP 2020. Not only do you get to meet Michael Morgan and the gang, the big wigs over at Oakland, you get a huge incentive for first going to oakland.com slash join, typing in VRP 2020. <laughs> 